Well, whenever there's a, a lack of unity, whether that's in a church or a marriage or uh, any other kind of Christian relationship, uh, there is sure to be unrest, frustration, anger, and pain uh, that ultimately result from that lack of unity. A- any sane person, that is any right-thinking person, doesn't want to be in a church that's divided, doesn't want to be in a marriage that is divided. They know what that looks like. They know what that, that feels like. They want unity. We all want unity, but how do we go about obtaining it? Now, the truth is many of us have, have gone about trying to obtain unity, but many times in the wrong way. We don't want to admit it, but we feel like we could be easily unified if everybody would just think like us. If everybody would just do exactly what they want, we want them to do, then we could just all get along and be unified one with another. But we do understand if you have any age under you at all, you know that it's just not the way that it works. And Paul understands that. And so very graciously by the move of the Holy Spirit, uh, here in in Philippians chapter 2, what God does is he leads him to write really uh, the, the primary teaching on unity in all of the word of God. And he began really by talking about motivation. What is our motivation to seek unity with one another? We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. Last week, we talked about the means of unity. That is, what must we do and what must we not do in order to obtain unity and maintain unity in our relationships? And and we looked at that. If you didn't get a chance, basically what Paul said is there's some things that you need to put away. And what what we need to put away is anything that has to do with selfishness, anything that has to do with conceit. Those things have to be taken off, and it has to be replaced with humility, that we do all things in humility. That is by recognizing other people as more important than ourselves, as well as not only looking after our own needs, but looking after the needs of others. This is, this is how unity ultimately occurs. And so Paul understood after teaching that, that some people were going to go, okay. Uh, what exactly does that look like? And, and we understand why he would do that, right? Because we don't really live in a world that's, uh, that, that's, that's all about humility. Instead, we live in a world that is selfish and self-centered and conceited. And so it would be hard for them to know what exactly this looks like. We need an illustration to know how this ultimately is to be lived out. And so he does give them an example, but it's not just any example. It's the preeminent example of humility the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's who he, he says, we need to know how this looks like. And he says, look to Jesus. Now, if you notice in verse five, he says this, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Another way of speaking of the mind is to speak about the attitude. He has just got done letting us know of attitudes that we need to jettison. And he says, but the attitude of Christ, one of true humility is what we need to take on. And when he says that this is which, which is yours in Christ Jesus, what he's saying is, hey, look, uh, this is what he uses, this phrase in Christ Jesus is always what he's using to let us know what Christianity looks like. He says, when you were apart from Christ, selfishness and conceit fit you. Uh, it was who you are. It was who I am. He says, but when we are in Christ, those things no longer fit us. They, they, it's like a, 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 it sticks out like a, a sore thumb. It doesn't match up with who you now are in Christ. So what he's saying is, as we as believers in Jesus Christ, let us be clothed with humility, which is fitting for all of us who call ourselves Christians and believers. And the humility and the way we know how to do that 
is by looking at the example of Jesus Christ, looking at his humility. How did he do it? How do we know what his humility was like? How do we understand how Jesus modeled this humility through everything that he did? I think in order to answer that, there's three things that we need to highlight. It's three things that I think that Paul highlights here. In order to understand what kind of humility Jesus modeled, three things we must know. Here they are. Number one, we have to know who he is. We have to know who he is. And I was going to say who he was, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so we need to know who this Jesus is that ultimately humbled himself. And, and look at in 6, he says, who though he was in the form of God. Okay, we got to stop there. He was in the form of God. When Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's not saying that he, was, he merely had the outward appearance of God. In other words, the word form itself literally refers to the outward manifestation of an inward reality. Another way to say it is that Jesus didn't merely reflect the glory of God. It emanated from him. He was the source of the glory of God from eternity's past. So, all right, so we need to understand there's a difference between reflecting the glory of God and emanating it, all right? Let me bring you to, to John 1. In John 1, uh, we begin to read about John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man ever born of woman. That's impressive, right? To have Jesus say that out of everybody ever born of woman, he was the most amazing man above them all, the greatest man. And this is what it says about him. There it says, that in John 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So what he's telling us is, as great a man as John the Baptist was, greater than any man, he didn't demonstrate or emanate the glory of God from himself. It didn't come from him. It was only reflected from his life. Uh, Paul will say it like this in chapter 2 and verse 15 in, in just a couple of weeks. He'll, he'll tell the, the Philippians that they are to shine as lights in the world. All right, you guys remember, we, we started learning this, that we're, the light is not us. We reflect the glory of God. You started learning this in Sunday school, right? This little light of mine. I'm going to get your little light out. Get it? Come on. Get this little light of mine. I'm, please sing so I don't have to. All right, right? And then we get there. Don't let, don't let Satan f- it out. I'm going to let it, right? Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm, you guys are with me, right? You remember this song. What is it saying? Our light is not saying that we are, we are emanating the glory of God because we're not God. This is what we do is we reflect the glory of God to a lost and dying world by us submitting ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That So through our actions and through our attitudes, the world sees what Christ is like, but we only reflect it. We don't admit it. It doesn't come from us. This is not the same case for Jesus. Do you see the difference? Jesus didn't reflect the glory of God. He was the glory of God. This is what the the, the Bible says. It says in Hebrews 1, 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul wants us to know about this Jesus who humbles himself, in essence, has no reason to be humbled because he is God, he has from eternity's past, before coming to earth here, he existed in his full glory. If you were to see him, you'd be blinded, you'd be dead, because he existed in the full form of his glory. Get that? 
It's important for us to understand because when we think of Jesus now, the first thought of us comes to little baby in the manger, oh, sweet little baby Jesus, or Anglo-Saxon Jesus, right? You know what I'm talking about? Where, where he doesn't really look like he probably would have looked, but he's, he's got this fair white skin and blue eyes and feathery, you know, dark hair. He looks like kind of like an 80s rock star or something. And, and you're looking at him like, oh, Jesus. He sits there and says, I, I know this physical picture is coming to your mind, but you need to know who he was before he humbled himself. Before he humbled himself and he took on human body, he was infinite God. The expression of his glory was on full display. Okay, so think of his glory. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to preach this, but think about this. His infinite glory, some of his disciples, the the inner dudes, right, his inner sanctum, they got to see a little bit of this on Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus sits there, and all of a sudden, you know, some old guys, old dead guys show up as well, and all of a sudden, the glory begins to shine, and Jesus begins to glow. And literally in the text, it was emanating. The glory of God was emanating from him. It was coming from him. And they get a glimpse, just a glimpse of what Jesus was like. Think of Old Testament. Think of, think of Moses. Moses goes, God, I want to see you in all of your glory. He goes, impossible, you can't. You can't see me. Nobody can look on God and still live. The glory is too great. It's too magnificent. You you would literally fall apart. Your atoms would rip apart if you see me. And he goes, just give me a glimpse. And he goes, okay, hide your face in the cleft of the rock uh, and and keep it there. Because I'm going to pass by. And when I pass by, you're just going to see the the remnants of me. Just the, the back, just a little portion of me. That's it. He sees the last little remnants of, of, uh, uh, of God. He goes down from the mountain, and the people are in absolute fear because of the reflection of God's glory still coming off his face, and they put a bag over his head. They go, you got to put a bag until that, until that reflection goes off. This is the glory of God that he existed from eternity's past. Now, stop and even think about that. Big God, big glory from eternity's past. You can't even get your minds around eternity's past. Remember doing that as a kid? So God didn't have a beginning? No. Uh, where did he come from? He's always existed. Ow. And your brain begins to cramp just trying to think of eternity. And he says he's existed from this before the foundations of the earth for all time. And note this. He existed in perfect fellowship with the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in complete and utter joy, just enjoying each other's presence for eternity. They're just... I love you, I love you, I love you. And they're all loving each other in this big God-glorious ball of the Trinity and Godhead. This is who they are. This is the one who ultimately humbles himself. Now, before he comes and does that, he does something else. He creates, well, he creates everything. All right, he's got to have a world to go to, but he's going to have to create it first. I'm willing to humble myself to come to the world that I'm going to save, but I got to go ahead and make it first, okay? Now, scientists, some of you are... Some of you are like into this. Some of you are like, all right, tell me something about me. All right, we'll get there. All right, just hold on. I'm sorry. I just thought the whole teaching on Jesus was, was going to grip us. All right, so uh, this is a Christian church, right? Just want to make sure. So Jesus, no, note this, he creates everything. It's interesting to me how, how scientists love to reject the facts of, of the creation story. Now, there, science is all about the facts, We only deal with facts. We only deal with realities, they say. But in order to be able to hold on to their unbelief that God, that there is a God who has created all things, knowing that if they do, they must subjugate themselves to his lordship as creator, what they do is they're not honest. 
They know, scientific world knows very well that at one time there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing and then came into existence. They say through a big bang, everything that, is, that exists came into existence. And you ask them what caused it and they go, well, nothing caused it. Somehow it just occurred. We're not really sure. And they're being disingenuous because they're saying everything came from nothing. And they understand that science itself says that if there is a cause, there, something must have caused that particular cause. Something had to have happened to this. And the Bible never strays away from saying it was Jesus Christ and him alone that created all things. This Jesus who existed from eternity's past on dis- with all of his glory on display and perfect fellowship with the triune God, he now creates this earth that he's gonna humble himself to. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter one, verse 16, for by him all things were created. John 1, 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was not made. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen, 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 yes? So let's just review this class for a minute before we understand who it is that humbles himself And Jesus, talk about his humility. Who is he? He is the eternal God. He is the creator of all things. He is the God whose glory was on display from eternity's past. Even before he created time, he was on display. And it is this God who has created all things that is now going to humble himself. Uh, Look, I, I love all the young people. And and all the proud parents, and I don't want to take anything away from that. It's exciting to sit there and go, yes, I got through high school. I got through elementary school. I got through. And listen, I don't care whether you're going to be a doctor or if you just got through the skin of your teeth. Hallelujah. Yes. I was one of those. You know, people are just like, yeah, they're going to go ahead and they're going to, you know, bring peace to the Middle East. That's my buddy. To me, it's just kind of like, dude, he just barely got by. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I got through. But let me tell you something. No matter how spectacular, no matter how, 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 whatever that is, your resume does not stack up with Jesus Christ. Anybody feeling bold this morning? Anybody feeling a little bit arrogant coming in, letting us know that all you've accomplished, how big your bank account is, all that you've done with the business by raising it up all by yourself, by grassroots and hard work, and look at everything that you've ever done. What I say is look to Jesus. All right, I love sports, sports characters, right? We're number one. Look to the foam finger, right? And they're all just, we're number one. We're the greatest in the world. You remember Vince Carter? Some of you are not old enough to remember him. He's a basketball player, and in the Hall of Fame, I believe, and, and there's even a baseball player who goes by this. He literally called himself half man, half amazing. Who are you? I'm half man, I'm half amazing. Really? Have you read the Bible lately? Have you read about Jesus? All right, have you read through him? If you would, you would not boast and you would not think you were all that if you have a clear picture of who this Jesus is. It's why Paul, in all that he knew, says, I have chosen to boast in nothing but Christ and Christ crucified, right? And it's no wonder that in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, it says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he has deceived himself. Here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to let you know that if we are to follow and humble ourselves before each other, and we'll get more to that, and we're struggling with that, look to Jesus. If you're wondering if you can muster up 
or even have a reason to humble yourself with how great you are or the embellished view of who you are. He says, look, for Jesus, you are infinitely below him. If Jesus should do it, you and I should do it. Get it? That's that's the thought process. So who do we know? First of all, we have to know who he is. Second thing we need to know is what he did not do. What he did not do. Now notice 6b. Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's break that down just a little bit. He did not account equality with God. He was equal, something to be grasped, something to be held onto. Now, commentators are really kind of divided on here. There's two major views of what this actually means. And it really depends on how they really translate the word grasped. Some uh, translate it to snatch. In other words, if that's the case, then what they would say is Jesus didn't try to snatch the rights to be God. He didn't try to snatch it, or he'd have to fight for his rights. He he didn't do that. And the answer for that is is because he didn't have to fight for rights or gain rights or, or, or try to snatch them because they were already his. They were his because he was God. He had all the rights in the world to be able to live and to be able to rule supreme. Are, are you with me? You, got, you guys with me on that? So here is God. So one says it's for him to snatch. The other says, no, it's not to be translated to snatch, but rather to hold on to or more specifically to cling on to. So somebody would say, no, he didn't have to snatch the rights. They were his alone. But what it's saying is he did not try to hold on to those rights, but willingly he was able to lay them aside, even when it would have been in his own benefit to be able to cling to them. You know, what's really interesting about this is when I read this, I can't help but to look at myself and go, how often I have the exact opposite attitude of what Jesus is saying. That man usually does, it does not follow the example of Jesus in this. Instead, what we often do is try to cling for rights that are not our own. Let me kind of give you this. You go back to Genesis. Just read that again. You go back into the garden, and there's Adam and Eve. What are they doing? This very thing. God says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Satan comes to them and says, you eat it. You will be like God. It's why he doesn't want you to have it. They eat it because they are grasping at the right to be God over their own life to determine what is right and right. They are, what is right and wrong. They are searching and trying to get hold of rights that are not theirs. Jesus comes, he's created it all. He doesn't try to cling to any, he doesn't try to uh, grasp at anything because it's already his, but he goes one step further. He doesn't even have to try to, he doesn't even hold on to those particular rights that are his by the fact that he is ultimately God. And so we see this, and we see this in the scriptures, that Jesus, when he comes and he becomes a man, he still has all the rights and privileges of God, but he doesn't use those for his own personal gain. Stop and think right before he gets, right when he gets arrested, before he goes to the cross. There he is, they're, they're praying, and, and there's Peter, and all of a sudden all these soldiers are coming, and Peter gets angry, and he whips out the sword, and it shows that he's a fisherman and not a soldier. He goes for the head, and he whacks off an ear right? And and so Jesus heals him, and he says, listen, don't you think that I could right now, if I wanted to, to be able to call out to my father and have him send me 12 legions of angels to be able to come? What was Jesus doing? Was he bluffing? Oh, Jesus juked you. Just kidding. I really couldn't send 12 legions of angels. No, he could have sent. It was his right, the creator of the universe who created those angels, who created those men to bring right judgment on those people. But you know what he did? He didn't do it for two reasons. Number one, he didn't do what would have been advantageous for him. 
Because to do what would have been right for him would have come as a detriment to you and me. If he chose not to go to the cross, then you and I would suffer if he clung to the rights that were rightfully his. Now let me break this down for you a little bit. We are notorious for clinging to rights that are not our own. I don't want to get into a bunch of politics and things. You know, I don't talk too much about a lot of that. We just preach Christ and Christ crucified, amen? And then we take that and then we work it out and everything we do. But it's amazing how many people talk about rights and how many people are sitting there. I was a, I was a history and political science in my, in my undergrad majors, and, uh, and I hear people on the television go, you know, it's our right. It is within our rights um, for the government to pay our health care, for the government to take care of us, for the government to be able to pay for all, all of our schooling and all these things. And, and, and I'm sitting there going, I don't read that anywhere in our, our, our finder's documents. I, I don't read that anywhere in, in the Declaration of Independence, and I don't read that anywhere uh, in the Bill of Rights. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? And then when I get into an, a discussion with somebody, they sit there and say, yeah, but you see, you don't get it wrong. It doesn't specifically say that, but what it does say in, in, in the Bill of Rights is that I have the right to be happy. And then I sit there and go, well, first of all, um, it's not in the Bill of Rights that you're referring to. It's the Declaration of Independence, which means that you have the right for life and for what? Liberty and the what? Pursuit of, happy, pursuit of happiness. It's not your right to be happy. You didn't even get the right document, and you're not even translating it correctly, interpreting it correctly, right? It's the same thing that we do, though. So many Christians do when they sit there and go, hey, man, why are you going to disobey God's word? Because God wants me happy. God would never make me do something. And I sit there and go, where is, where is that in the Bible? Oh, it's in there. It's in there. Where? I, I see this part where it says that you are to be holy as God is holy, but not happy as God is happy. I see that in the scriptures. Yeah, but it, it's got to be in there somewhere, right? And so the idea is, look, we, we don't have that. We don't have that right. We're always clinging to rights that most of the time are not even our own. Second thing we do is when there are rights that we have, we tend to not to want to let go of them at all. There's a tendency of that. We want to cling to those rights as tightly as we can. Let me give you kind of an example of maybe how this plays out for men, all right? I'm not a woman, so it's harder for me to come up with that illustration. Um, but um, I really am not a woman. So um, anyway, and so, so just in case you were wondering, all right? So this, a um, lot of confusion. So this, this whole idea, where am I? All right, there we go. Um, with, with men, it almost went off to a whole nother sermon. All right, so... So the idea there is that, where am I? Okay, where, where were we? Right? Oh, men, men, there we go, there we go. I looked at a man that was guilty of it, and it reminded me. So um, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. And so men, we, we know what this looks like to cling to rights. I've heard men many times, I've said it myself, I've thought it, where I've been working hard, and there's something that I wanted, and my defense to my wife for getting it is this, I work hard for my money. No, no, I work, I work hard for my money. Here it is. I work hard for my money. I deserve this. Men? Men? All right, I see a hand. See another hand. All right, the ones that won't raise their hands. Ladies, which one of your husbands have said it? Raise your hand. They'll tell on you, right? And I know some of you are ultra, ultra righteous. I know, but you're lost. But so the idea is, is, is here, here's the idea. Is, is you may not have said this, but sometimes we, we feel that way. Okay, let's, let's say this. Maybe it is your right to be able to spend your money on what you ultimately want to be able to spend it on. But let me just say this. But the fact that we would have to defend it 
shows that we know that clinging to our rights can only be done for our benefit and at the detriment of somebody else. It's why we defend that decision to begin with. It's why we have to say it's our right to do this because there is something within us that knows to do it, it's going to take away for the good of somebody else. Do you see that? And that is just the opposite attitude that Jesus Christ has displayed. He has all the rights in the world to do as he pleases, but he not only, gra- he not only tries to, he doesn't grasp at rights, but the rights that he rightfully has, he loosely and willingly sets them aside for the good of someone else. So here's the third thing, and we're almost done. Your, our favorite point, the third point. Almost done. Here we go. Number one, how do we understand his humility? Number one, who he is. Number two, what he did not do. And number three, to really understand how he humbled himself, you have to understand what he did, what he did. And this is what the scriptures say. Beginning in verse seven, he says, he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Now, theologically, just understand this. When Jesus became a man, he didn't become un-God, okay? He's not pulling, uh, you know, um, a basketball player, a baseball player, Half man, half amazing, all right? He's not, he's not doing that. He didn't give up his divinity when he became a man. He came into the form of man, existed in the form of man, which meant he took, he took on humanity, but he never let go of his divinity. So here, understand this. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he will be so forever. Got that? You understand that? So fully God, fully man, will be so forever. He is the God man. This is what we refer to as, as the incarnation. But by him taking on manhood, we see how far he had to step, right? Because now this God who has existed from eternity's past in eternal bliss within fellowship of the Godhead now knows what it is like to be hungry. The creator of the world knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to have a dire thirst when he's on the cross. He knows what it is, it is like to be unbelievably exhausted to the point that you could be in a boat in the midst of a hurricane and people have to shake you and yell at you to get you up you're that exhausted this creator of all game that to whom life was given knows what it is now like to be able to bear physical pain and even experience death here's what my point is it is infinitely huge step for an infinitely great god to become a man but it gets further down than that he goes lower than that because he just doesn't become a man. He becomes a bondservant. So there's nothing great about him. Here's another way to be able to say this. He goes from extraordinary to ordinary. Even Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 53 too, it tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, when he comes back as a human being, he doesn't come back as a president or as a king or as a wealthy man or as somebody who is popular or somebody who is either even beautiful. Look, if I were to do that, if I were God, I'm like, well, if I'm stepping down there anyway, I might as well make it easier on myself. I'm going to be a king and I'm going to be rich and I'm going to, I'm going to be ridiculously good looking, all right? And that's what I'm going to do. Jesus sits there and says, when I step down, I'm stepping all the way down, all the way down. And he comes, and he not only becomes a man, but then he takes on himself a bondservant, which was the lowest of the low in the culture during the day. The Greek word is, is, is servant or slave. It's doulos. It's a, it's a, it's a bondservant. A bondservant had no rights of their own. 
They weren't able to seek the will of their own, and they basically owned nothing. Only thing they had was entrusted to them by their master. This is clearly a picture of Jesus that we see in the way that he lives his life. Jesus himself said, remember the creator of all things who has the rightful deed, the title deed to all the world that back in, the Revel- in Revelation, we'll see him take the title deed back because he owns everything. Here he is setting all that aside and the Bible says of him, Jesus said himself, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man was, has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't even own a regular normal a mode of transportation like a donkey. When he's being praised and he has to go in to Jerusalem and Palm Sunday, you know, is all taking place and people are like, oh, hallelujah, you're wonderful, Hosanna in the highest. He has to borrow the donkey. When he's about to eat his last supper, you think, hey man, let me just be in my home with my friends. There is no home. He has to borrow a room. And even at his death, he has to, uh, there has to be a borrowed tomb for him even to be able to place his body in. Do you see the depth of stepping down? Do you see the depth of humility? It's not just that he became man. He became a servant as well. And he became to the point where he submitted himself fully, even to the point of death, the word of God tells us. And in fact, in verse 8, notice, he says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it's not even like he just dies from old age. It's not like he dies in some other way. You know, you know, the worst thing for me is, is somebody going, well, how'd he pass? Well, man, you know, those bonbons finally got to him. He was sitting in that recliner, buddy, and he just, I mean, I don't want to go out that way, right? So people are like, are you afraid when you go to another country that you're going to die? I go, I hope I do. All right, no, let me explain. Uh, what, what I mean by that is not like I'm going to die at that moment, but if I'm going to go out, don't you want to go out propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than eating bomb bombs in retirement with a lazy boy? The lazy boy is you and not the chair, right? And so I don't want that. I don't want that. And so Jesus doesn't even go out in this blaze of glory. How does he die? In the most humility, humiliating way to die possible on a cross. See, it's hard for us to be able to understand that. Here's why. Because when we look at the cross, we think jewelry. We think of decoration. Hey, got to have a cross up on top of the building. Got to decorate with it. Hey, got to wear it. Here's my cross. I don't know if you've ever seen my tattoo. Um, I'm just kidding. On my back is a cross. Just joking. I don't have that. But it's, it's all tattoos. It's something that's kind of cool. It's, it's relevant. Even people who don't believe in Christ. And I get it because it means something to us. Yes. It reminds us of the ultimate payment for our sin, what Christ did. But we have to understand something that in the first century, it was much more difficult to embrace this whole cross idea. Because what we find out is it was the most humiliating way to die, one of the most painful ways to die. Most that were crucified on the cross, it took, it took days for them to be able to die, and they would ultimately die by suffocation because they would become so exhausted, their lungs would fill with blood and water, and they could not breathe, and they would suffocate to death after days. And then what we find, though, is, is even in that day, in Roman society, F.F. F. Bruce says this in his study, in Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. In other words, it was a cuss word. It was, it was not to be uttered in conversation. When a person was found guilty of a severe crime and his punishment was to die on the cross, an archaic formula was used to avoid the pronunciation of the word itself. In other words, this is why the first century had a hard time embracing the picture of the cross or to put it on their lapel, or to put it on their necklace, because it was an obscenity. It was like taking the worst obscene word you can think of and plastering it on yourself. They, they, didn't want, they struggled with, with that. And this is what Jesus does. 
this infinitely great God from eternity's past in all his glory, humbles himself by creating a world that he will then come to as a man, then as a servant man, then to die in the worst possible way that he can ultimately die. And then here's the, ama- here's the amazing thing about it. He does it all, not for righteous people, but for sinners. <clears throat> for sin- That's the point you have to get. The scripture says rightly, listen, we're, we're about to close. Romans 5, 7 says this. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He humbled himself and brought on the ultimate humility for people who hated him, for people who mocked him, for people who raised their hand in disobedience to him, wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he died and humbled himself for them. That's the amazing part of this. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? Remember what the whole point was from the beginning. Paul said, we are to get rid of all selfishness. We are to get rid of all conceit. We are to humble ourselves. Now notice this. We are to humble ourselves by, by seeing others as more important than ourselves and looking after the interests of others, even over our own. This is the picture that Paul gives us. This is what that looks like. For us this morning, I think there's three things for us to be able to find in humility. I think number one, is it has to begin by you knowing who you are. Knowing who you are. One of the biggest reasons that we fight for each other is because we think that we're all that. We think that we're something. We think that we're worth fighting over our rights, our privilege, our, our, our thoughts of ourselves, our personalities, our reputations, whatever it is that we want. But the Bible sits there and says, if Jesus didn't even do it, who's great, infinitely greater than us, then why would we who are fallen and depraved try to fight for something like that? Number two, some of us have got to be able to give up the best that we can, trying to grasp rights that are not our own. And then, within and able to maintain unity in your marriage, in your church, in every relationship, you've got to be able to come to the point that says, I may have rights, but I'm not going to cling to them because clinging to my rights means good for me, but the detriment and the harm of someone else. Living out the gospel is to be able to bring difficulty in suffering on yourself for the sake of another and here's the amazing part when they're not deserving of it when they're not deserving of it now listen here's what can happen this week and i I encourage you to do this this week i may get a phone call from one of you that says listen our marriage is not going well and we want to minister to you we want to be able to help you we want to be able to talk with you but here's what we're going to do we're going to talk about the exact same scripture passage as we're going over this morning because that's the only thing that I can tell you. Because you'll sit there and say, but, but, but they're not doing what I want them to do. And I'll say, look to Jesus. But wait a minute, I have the right to look to Jesus. You sit there and say, well, listen, you're telling me to give them, extend grace and mercy to them when they're doing what is wrong. And I'll keep sitting there and say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for this morning. And thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. God, I know that there's a lot here this morning. God, we just pray in the name of Jesus that, Lord, you would take, and God, you know my anxiousness of even preaching such a passage. It's one of four of the greatest Christological passages in all of the Word of God. 
I had 30 minutes, 35 minutes to try to unpack it. And God, all my, this whole week, all I could think of is, how do you do justice? How do you do justice of identifying who Christ is and what he did? I can't, I can't, I can't do it. Everything is going to fall short. But I do believe that your Holy Spirit is more powerful than my ability to proclaim the truth. And so God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us, that we would humble ourselves before you, before each other, before our spouse, before our children, as we keep our eyes on you. We are never more like Christ when we are considering others to be greater than ourselves. We are never more like Christ when we are looking after the interests of others and not just our own. And we are never, or we're never more, uh, we are never less like Christ than we're all about ourselves. Jesus, help us. Jesus, help us. Now, Lord, I pray, if there anyone here that needs to know you in light of the gospel that's been preached, let them come to know you. Lord, if there's any that need to repent, let them repent. If there are any need to be rejoiced in, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ, let us exalt you. Whatever needs to be done, let us do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? I'm gonna be down here as always. If you need prayer, I wanna pray with you. If you've got questions, I'd love to answer those, those questions. Altar is open. For you, if you want to come, if you want to pray, but let's just do business with God as we sing.